0: To an American audience, I can compare it to what happened during the 9-11. It was an event that changed us all. Today's
1: guest is Damian Pachter, the journalist who in 2015 broke the news regarding the mysterious death of Argentinian prosecutor Alberto Nisman. Nisman was a special prosecutor trusted to investigate the AMIA terrorist bombing, and he had planned to implicate a number of powerful people, including the president of Argentina, in covering up what truly Happened. Nisman was found shot dead in his apartment, and the Argentinian intelligence service began to stalk Damian, who then fled the country after a crazy forty-eight hours, fearing he too would be murdered. We get into all that and more. Enjoy the podcast. The way Will John. Damian, thanks for being here, man. What's up? Thank you for How inviting you doing?
0: me. Everything's okay now. We had a few <laughs> tough days full of rockets, but uh, here in Tel Aviv. But now we're good. Everything's okay.
1: It's, it's a weird thing, right? Because you just kind of I spent some time in Ashdod, you know uh, I was actually I almost uh, joined Ashdod, the, the football club that's there. And while I was there and I don't think I've ever told this story I had never really been exposed to the whole rockets can fall out of the sky at any time thing, right? And so we were coming back from training, and uh, one guy who was sitting in the car, uh, he turned on the radio real quick and obviously at the what i didn't know at the time is that he could hear the siren uh and that's what he was that's what he was hearing and so he turned on the radio and i'm like what's this guy doing like why aren't we listening to this cool music i'm enjoying this turns it down boom all of a sudden swerves like the guy who's driving the car realizes also what's up swerves in we get into like a shopping mall district area and as we everybody runs i have no idea what's going on no clue right and but i see around me families kids everybody's panicking to get inside uh the mall like as soon as they as they can. And uh as soon as they I kind of caught on. Like your brain kind of catches on in moments like that, right? Uh and uh obviously everything ended up being okay. Uh but uh I don't know what happened at that specific time. If the if the if it had gotten shut down or if it actually had hit. They told us later, but just uh it's a hard thing to get used to, or maybe it isn't. I don't know. What's it like living there? You just so used to it now or
0: I'd like to think that you can never get used to it. You know, it's you're downtown, you're in the middle of a civilian area. It's not like you're in the border in some kind of a military construction, uh, an outpost or whatever. You are in the middle of your home, in the middle of your life, doing whatever. And then, like you said, the alarm sounds. And then you just, out of nowhere, you, you go and you take cover. And wish for the best, you know, I can understand totally the first experience because also my wife, she came from Germany to live with me here in Israel last year. And last year was her first time having to experience such a tough experience. And also this year now, the last week was her second. And it's it's not scary for the people who are new, it's scary for everybody, even if people don't like to admit it. Cause It's not normal to live like that. That's, I guess, summarize all.
1: Yeah. I mean, by no means. Uh, Why don't you give us a good background on on who you are? I mean, you have an interesting story of having to have also, if I understand it right, having to essentially flee Argentina for uh, various reasons. Why don't you bring us up to why that happened and and what you're doing now?
0: Of course. So... My name is Damien Pachter. I was born in Argentina in 1984. I'm 38 years old. I was born to a Jewish family in Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina. I lived there all my childhood until I was 11 years old when my family decided to migrate to Israel. My parents were back there in divorce. My mother was an architect, and my father was a, a forensic doctor. In 1996, due to the situation in Argentina, the economic situation, and the lack of a good future, according to my mother, for me, she decided that, okay, it's time to, to move on and go to another place. So she'd been in Israel during the 70s as a volunteer in a kibbutz, which is kind of a, how can I put it? It's kind of a socialist uh, com- commune community and okay. people okay. do their agricultural work. so she already had an idea what it's like to live here and by 1996 we came here to Tel Aviv. I finished here elementary school, I finished high school, and then I went I volunteered for the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. for three years, I become a fighter. And then when I finished those three years in 2006, I went back to live to Argentina to take care of the family of my father, who by then was uh, dead. Uh, he died a few months after I arrived to Israel. And I took care of my grandmother and my aunts, who were very old people, 90 years plus, And they didn't have nobody else but me in the world. I went there, and in the course of that time, I started to learn an international relations degree in university with a specialization in journalism. And soon enough, I realized that my international relations degree won't take me anywhere. So I said, okay, where, where I can do something practical. You know, a doctor goes to the hospital, an architect builds buildings, a football player plays football, but an international relations person, what do they do exactly? So I had kind of an internal dilemma. And I said, okay, let's become a journalist. I like history, I like writing, I like to speak with people. And that's how I decided to go for it. And during the middle of my degree, I got accepted to an internship for the BBC in Buenos Aires, and that's how it started. Then I went to the Associated Press AP as a stringer and freelance reporter. And then I became a full-time journalist for the Buenos Aires Herald, which is, was back then the only newspaper written in English. And this was already 2012. And until 2015, when everything went downhill, in a way. <laughs> okay. Uh,
1: and we're definitely going to touch on that. I'm, I'm curious about you know having to to also serve you know in in Israeli defense and what that was like. As a matter of fact, I mean, obviously we, we just had on uh, Uri Geller, who has an interesting story,
0: That's my <laughs> and
1: who's quite the eccentric guy. He's your neighbor, yeah.
0: okay. We both live in Jaffa. Super cool. <laughs> okay,
1: in Jaffa, yeah, where the, uh, the museum is. Super, super cool guy, super cool guy. But uh, why don't you then, you say in 2015, everything went downhill. Why?
0: So I was working as a staff writer for the Buenos Aires Herald. I was mainly dealing with uh, foreign news. Meaning, you know, for those people who are not aware exactly, in the newspaper you have several sections. One cover politics, other one covers sports, and I was in charge of the uh, foreign news, everything that had to do with uh, major developments happening worldwide. I had to write them, uh, translate them into a proper English, and uh, write a piece about it, and that's what was, that was my daily basis routine. Um, However, I, was also had, I also had my, my, the points, the subjects that I was more interested in, which was always terrorism, national security, and the intelligence world. Um, maybe it's something that happened while I was living in Israel, and I got like, adopted it inside of me. And as you know, during the 90s in Argentina, there were two major bombings. The one, one of them, the first one was in 1992 against the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires. It was a terror attack uh, carried out by Hezbollah. And it was the first major terrorism act on American continent before 9 11, was in the 90s. Two years later, the Amia Jewish Community Center was uh, blown up as well by another cell of Hezbollah. And I was still living in Argentina back then. So those were like, I, I can only, to an American audience, I can compare it to what happened during the 9-11. It was an event that changed us all, especially the Jewish community, because those were attacks aimed against the Jewish community in Argentina. And you kind of, start feeling to see things changing around you. I was in a Jewish school. Suddenly, we have these huge cement constructions. Suddenly, the police was on a daily basis there trying to show presence so we would feel like more secure. Um, The big metal detectors they were also put in some of the places, it was very weird. And I think that's something that, uh, stay in buried in, inside of me, deep inside of me. Um, just a parenthesis, uh, if you, for example, if you have relatives and one of your relatives uh, uh, dies, you go to this Amya Jewish Community Center to do the bureaucracy so this person could be buried in the Jewish cemetery. So we all knew this building. Or our family members, at least once in their life, they knew it. So it was blown up. And there was a prosecutor whose name was Alberto Nisman. He was investigating these attacks. In 2006, he's appointed to lead the investigation, trying to see who was around, who was responsible for it, both in the planning level and the people who took it in the practical level to execute the attack. And... He was appointed by the president back then in 2006, Nestor Kirchner. The guy started his investigation and uh, fast forward, his wife of this president, Christina Kirchner, becomes president on 2007. A few years later, white investigation is keep on going, the government of Argentina decides to reach a deal with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And this is very, very problematic to both the Jewish community and above all to the judicial community in Argentina. And why is that? Because the judicial system in Argentina had determined that Iran, through Hezbollah, was responsible for the attacks. So one day we woke up with the news that this government, while there's an investigation still ongoing, decided to reach a deal with them to take out the responsibility of the Iranians involved in this attack for trade benefits.
1: Now, is the problem that it was a backdoor deal? Is the problem that they just kind of wiped the slate clean and that that wasn't going to go well? Or uh, did did the, the people in Argentina or the Jewish community within Argentina feel as if uh, even having any sort of relationship with Iran in that time is basically like traitorous in the sense, like it's a treacherous act to do at that time, considering that they were essentially hand in hand connected with the people that were uh carrying out the bombing planning the bombing and stuff like that what was was that the real issue or like what what then blow it like what was the real thing
0: yeah it's exactly like you mentioned because the news about an upcoming deal between iran and argentina was known by the press by a journalist called uh, called uh pepe eliashev he used to work on the Perfil newspaper and he's the one who uncovered this entire thing and he literally did a piece acknowledging that the two states were behind doors negotiating a deal. And that was shocking for the people who lived there.
1: Okay, okay. Um, and you you mentioned, so this is before you even, before this happened uh, as well, you served in the Israeli defense. The Israeli defense and all of the, and then what's the, the secret service is called Mossad, right? Uh, or is that Israeli secret? What's the difference here, actually? You didn't serve in Mossad. You served in the Israeli defense, or, or did you?
0: The Mossad is like your CIA. Okay. And the IDF is just the regular army mm-hmm. with the different branches, Navy, okay. Air Force, and Infantry. Wow.
1: Okay. So what did you, what did you do, and what's that like? like what, what were you specializing in, if you can say?
0: Yeah, of course. Uh, I was uh, in a unit called uh, Stinger. It was a Stinger Missiles unit. Uh, those are missiles that okay. go from uh, land to air missiles. We carry them on ourselves, and the objective of this unit is to take out helicopters and fighters jets. That's the wow. Yeah,
1: the main objective. Yeah, the,
0: the, which is wow. funny because okay. one of these missiles are taller than me. You know, so <laughs> it makes, okay. It makes so sense. intense
1: training. to to have to yeah Yeah, no i mean i don't doubt it at all i mean we've had a number of uh service uh guys who have served in in military cia uh and you know it's always fun to talk to them about what's going on because it's so different than anything that is uh going on in what would be an everyday life you know as just a normal civilian and uh there's usually a whole lot of dedication uh mental toughness and all this stuff that's required, you know, that you can imagine is required to serve in those things. But I'm curious, as a journalist now, you said you had a focus on terrorism and, and all this stuff. I've got, a, I've got a real question, which I hope is one that is that you maybe haven't. But it seems like the war on terror is one that you can't ever win. It seems like the way, at least the America, the way at America brands the war on terror is that... We continually talking about, and just now, we, we we got that guy who was involved in this, uh, the September 11th threat attacks, right? It wasn't really in the zeitgeist uh, at all. I, 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 I remember pictures of him. I don't know if he has been attributing to any attacks on American soil or uh, anyone outside in, in, you know, maybe in the UK or in the Western world or, you know, even in Israel. But it seems like it's this never-ending gift carrot that we can't. I don't know how to how to how do we end this how do we win this war it's kind of like the war on drugs uh in the US which i which is a funny thing because i think sometime in the early 2000s or something we declared the war on drugs won i think we declared that we we won uh <laughs> or something like this so as a journalist and, and how, how do you see that is this just the states using their powers in a way kind of doing stuff they are combating how do you really see terrorism in the world today
0: it's a great question honestly and I'm not sure that I have all the answers, but if I would be an American and I would be that day in New York when the 9-11 events happened or in Washington in the Pentagon or the airplane who crashed in Pennsylvania, it gives you a feeling that, you know, somebody just messed with us. And so what, what are the really options? Israel has been dealing with this for decades. You know, we have experience in here dealing with terrorism, whether it's from the original PLO or then the more radical uh, religious Islamist movements like Hamas or Hezbollah. So you think, okay, what are my options when I have one of the most uh, stronger armies that ever existed? I'm speaking about the U.S., well, you you could like see sure. it go back and okay let's do negotiations or something like that a more diplomatic approach if you want but I think back then you didn't have any other choice but to fight it and go into the source of it now was it Iraq the source of it no I don't think so but there was as I understand there was a bigger approach back then by the government of uh, George W. Bush to try to democratize a region, bring democracy to a region, which is basically
1: Mm.
0: impossible to to make it happen back then. But it's not like the American government and the experts, they are stupid or something. You know, you have the biggest brains that the world has ever seen, both as an analyst, whether it's the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, or the military. So I, I wouldn't underestimate the lack of understanding of the United States in the region, not at all. I think they realized that they need to send a message mm-hmm. that something like that happened in nine eleven never happened again. So to go back to your sure. original question, I think you must fight it. That's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough point. I, 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 actually, I mean, I agree in, in having, obviously I didn't, I wasn't terribly directly affected meaning that I didn't have family or friends, uh, that, uh, you know, were, were affected or killed in nine 11. But obviously I remember it very, very clearly. I remember the mood of the country. You remember everything that's going on. It's, it's just, it, it is just like you, you wake up in another world, right? You woke up and everything was one way and then boom, from this day on, everything is different and it was never, it's never gone back. To the way it was before, um, and I think you are definitely right when I th- when I think about it because it's not something that I've, den- I've generally given a deep thought to is like what to do, but it does seem that you want to be proactive with someone that is that's messing with you in the same sense that uh, 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 kids learn to m- the bully you don't just let the bully pick on you over and over and over and over again. Uh, eventually, if you don't either, you know, make him disappear or walk away completely, or give it the, you have to have some sort of option. Maybe you front, you know, face it. And given uh, America's um, ability within within the military, like you said, the analysts, the amount of things that they have available to them, it makes sense to be on the hunt rather than to be the hunted. Uh, so from that aspect, I can completely get it. I think it it's quite interesting to see that over the course of now, right? It's t- over twenty years. Uh, and obviously we can never really know how many attacks have been stopped by what they've done. And I mean, I've talked to some of the, some of the experts and they've obviously, you know, said, yes, things, we are stopping things clearly, uh, that you don't hear about or that you can't hear about and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but there is always going to be the, the, the question of a, are we overstepping our bounds? Is America overstepping its bounds possibly in these regions? Uh, what about the fallout for all the civilians in those regions? Uh, the potential to radicalize, um, you know, kids and people of, you know, who are just, you know, a kid just over there in Iraq doesn't have any of the power of Saddam Hussein's army and is just trying to go to school. And here comes drones and here come all sorts of things. And, and, and you know, and it, and it does extend. And I think I would say, uh, apart from the fact that obviously, as an American, you, you want to feel safe and you want to feel that they're. Taking care of things, uh, America has an interesting ability to be involved in a whole lot, and as you would know i 'm sure as a journalist, you can 't pay attention to fifty thousand things and I think if you ask the average American where are we engaging in conflict and military war i don 't think a single average American could tell you where we 've dropped drones, where we 're attacking, where there's issues and stuff like, and stuff like that. Um, and so there's always this, this kind of cat and mouse back and forth game of overreaching and not to mention, uh, I would definitely want to know what you think about uh, something like the, the Snowden case, and which is not necessarily related to terrorism. But the reason I'm, I'm, I'm mentioning that is because a lot of times when there's a threat, this is definitely true throughout history. When there's a threat to the government or there's a threat to the people or when at least the people believe there's a threat, governments usually overstep their bounds within what they will do to try and say, OK, we need to protect this. Now we can look at your phones or we need to protect everybody. Don't worry. Uh, you, you all have to do X, Y and Z. So uh, how do you feel about the rights and in, in things that are, um, you know, the, that the government does or maybe takes away or extends in order to protect people through terrorism?
0: I'm more on the on that aspect specifically. I'm more on the conservative side, in the sense that um, I am ready to give up some of my individual freedoms, if that means that my community, whether it's the neighbor or the level or in the neighborhood or the level of uh, I don't know the bigger levels of it, and at the end a country will be safer. So I have my mm. it's a dilemma right because okay where where who sets where your individual rights uh, uh, are passed or not who decides that but in that specific case because of the you know here in Israel it's basically in a lot of aspects the data is everywhere by the security forces you know the that they, they, they know they can track you if they want, and but it's kind of a given reality here. It's not like, for example, in European countries, which the personal data it's much more sensible. So i personally, I'm in if it's in order to avoid uh, future attack. Um, I, of course, I, I me specifically will be ready to give up on some uh, liberties and some uh, rights. But because I also I don't have nothing to hide. So, you know, if somebody mm. somebody listens to, to my phone, okay. However, I'm, spe- I'm speaking specifically about Israel. If we take it to Argentina mm. or Latin America, that goes to a okay. whole different level, same like it happens in another uh, Muslim or Arab countries. The security services in countries which don't have the liberties and the rights of the Western world, for example, Europe or the States, the security services, and I know it on a personal level, they tend to make harm to those who they think are a danger to the system, whether if it's a journalist like myself, whether it's an opposition figure, whether it's somebody who in any way can touch a sensitive nerve that can harm the government or the power as a whole. So it depends where it's been used. That's my that's what I think, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there are terrible things that happen all across Latin America by security forces, which they have a long history of just doing whatever they want, basically, kidnapping people, murdering people, disappearing people, whether it is in Mexico, like it happened several times, or all across Latin America. Uh I don't think in the States that's something that's likely to happen, for example, that a prosecutor will charge Joe Biden with treason, and four days later this prosecutor will find himself with a gunshot wound in his right. head like it happened in Argentina. Those are the differences. Mm, mm-hmm.
1: I see. I mean, uh, the U.S., and in, 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 uh, that's definitely that's a good transition to something that I wanted to, to, to speak about, which is essentially uh, there's a really interesting book that is actually hard to read at, at times, but it's called The Devil's Chessboard. It, I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Have you heard of it?
0: I have the name. I don't remember it specifically
1: it's a it's a it's a book about uh i believe it's alan dulles who was i believe the head of the cia for a large period of time uh and his brother they were heavily involved within the, the intelligence community and the cia in the the u.s uh throughout i believe i want to say the 60s 70s 80s maybe uh maybe 50s 60s 70s um and it it, it talks a whole lot about the the meddling and the uh, in foreign countries uh that the u.s kind of did throughout that time period you know there was a large time period throughout the 60s and 70s where the u.s was very active in south america and in central america in trying to make sure who's going to be the next leader how much of alliance how well are they going to be our friend you know etc and and that's very well documented obviously that's not not really a secret anymore uh what 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 went on um but uh, to, to To your comment on the on the journalists and stuff, it is clear because I mean we look at now and obviously there's a war going on over there in, in russia and ukraine, and it's very clear to most people obviously what happens to dissidents that against putin i mean it's 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 actually quite crazy that you have even civilians uh, they kind of, they definitely watch their words i mean if you watch i mean I speak Russian, um and I, I i I watch one of the most there's some podcasts that are fantastically popular, and these guys and some of them even outside of the the country, still watch what they say. You know, just you can see that there's a definite understanding that you don't want to cross two bounds. Like some of them are like, I'll speak about it, I'll say what I want to say, but they don't go too far. Whereas you're 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 quite right. I mean, the amount of websites and places you can go in the U.S. to find somebody who's mad at Trump or mad at Biden and virtually says everything in the world, even things on both of them that aren't true. That could be even conspiratorial and just not true. They just we go all about it, and that's it's a beautiful part about America, and it's also probably an an issue, right? Because it distracts you from what's what's truth uh, to a certain degree. But I I would say one of the things that I've probably noticed is that for journalists in the U S there is a, um, they don't have that fear. I think you're right. I don't think they have the fear of being murdered, disappeared, or their family being in danger for having to speak out, but nonetheless, and you'll have to tell me if you agree with this, uh, there's some sort of line that you're still supposed to go with, and whether that's because the, the, the state or the CIA is kind of meddled into whether that's CNN or Fox, uh, and has some sort of control to some degree, some influence, let's say, would probably be best, uh, there, there is, I think, to some degree, you kind of can't push. Uh, there is, there still does seem to be a line. It's just not done in, in a barbaric fashion like it's done in some of these other countries. I don't know, do do you sense that case? I don't know how much you've worked with journalists in the u s or
0: I didn't work as a journalist in the u s but if the things like you mentioned happen, it's a much more in a, in a subtle way. Maybe that's the way to define it. You don't see dozens of people having an issue you you see for example Snowden, who was not a journalist who wasn't CIA analyst uh, in a way, breaking the trust that he was given and ending in Russia. Now, in the middle of all this, he uncovered tremendous, uh, kind of a tremendous conspiracy against uh, what we talked before, like the security forces that were aimed to defend you, they actually, apparently, according to what Snowden thinks, they can track you, Whoever you are, wherever you are, at any given time. And I think it gives you kind of the, what, what he did gave you the scoop, the, the, the full picture of what's going on inside the espionage world today and what their capacities are, which were, you know, I always took into, given like the government is listening to my phone in a, when I was in South America, but I can understand the somebody who's not used to this suddenly discovers such a big and large plan.
1: Yeah. And I think that was part of the thing for most Americans was that uh you know, when when you're attacked, it's very easy to have a when you have a common enemy, it's really easy to see who that is and to say, we don't really care what happens to them. The second that I think uh the Snowden revelations happen. And people realized that they could be a part of it. It kind of changed the way it it changed the sentiment across uh, the U.S. I think the the feeling towards because I think up until that time it was very clear that the enemy was outside uh, and that the government was doing its best to to do that. And then on a very wide scale, almost overnight, it seemed like every American was being spied on. Everybody wants to—they have all your data. You would have no rights, and the Patriot Act has changed this and. We could charge you. If we charge you with terrorism, you lose your rights and, and et cetera. So it, it is an interesting thing. But uh, to, to swing things back over to, to where you're at now, uh, here's a question that you, don't, you won't have the answer for, <laughs> I don't think. Peace in the Middle East. Can you project out? If you could, if you could project out to have a, a true, I mean, could we ever look at a world that is going to actually have proper peace where you're at?
0: Between Israel and Palestinians, for example, sure, I don't believe that it's possible, not in the near but not in the near future, not the short term. and the reason for that is that there's such a lack of trust between the sides. there's a lot of hate also which has finished another round. In the Gaza Strip, where the IDF bombed uh, basically mainly Islamic Jihad uh, targets and positions. And on the other hand, we got almost 1,000 projectiles coming in from the Gaza Strip in 72 hours. It's 300 rockets falling down on you every single day for three days. but. I think there are elements that people who analyze this region because of the political correctness that is going around in the world or kind of a more progressive point of view, people or experts don't like to focus on one of them. many issues here, which is not just a land issue or territory issue it has also has deep roots in religious uh, reasons, in beliefs, different systems of beliefs, different uh, from the most basic things of all. And however, with with this set, there is also a difference between the rest of the Arab countries. As you know, Israel just made peace and normalization with several Gulf states, which is something that was never seen before. I, I would never imagine if you would tell me two years ago, three sorry, five years ago, that one day we will have peace with Bahrain, with the United Arab Emirates. I, I would tell you well, you're dreaming, man. It's not possible. Sure. And I guess okay. there are things that are changing. And why it's different with them and with the Palestinians goes another way. I think there's a generational, generational issue there. Uh, we need to, to, to make time do its thing, and the old guard leaves this world, and the new generation comes. However, experience tells that new generations are more radical, quite the opposite. And as you become more, I guess it's a rule of life in a way, you become more older and you become more moderate and you become more wise. However, in the Palestinian Authority, there hasn't been free elections in 15 years. So that's a big issue also. I see.
1: I see. So, yeah, in, in one hand, it seems as if, yeah, you would expect that as the old guard goes out, the new ones would come in and kind of keep these new progressive, I guess you could say, ideals kind of coming and that would kind of permeate through through society, which is kind of what you would expect to a certain, certain degree. Uh, but to, I mean, I was there, I spent a, a decent amount of time there in Israel. Uh, and would you say that it is the general consensus, and I've seen this in a, a few, not just documentaries, but a, a few YouTube videos with interviews of Arabs and Jews living within Israel, um, which was also something that I didn't, I was unaware of before going there, uh, how that that's the case. I, you know, you only hear, you only hear and see when you see it in, in the U S it's only like, okay, Pal- Pal- Palestinians and Jews are fighting and Arabs versus the Jews. And there's just this, you don't know if you don't look in close of it, you don't realize that there it's, it's quite diverse when you're, when you're uh, actually in the country, I, and I in uh, in they're living side by side.
0: Of course. <laughs> right,
1: yeah, and, uh, I, you wouldn't know this as, a, as, a, you know, as just an American outside where you only hear the, the superficial nature of the conflict. Is it, is it true, or would you, would you say that it's true, that I've seen stats as large as like people saying 99% or 90% of the Arabs and Jews living within Israel do not care about this conflict at all. And that, that there's a smaller 10%, also a 10% people are possibly in power that are continuing this, or let's just say a smaller portion of the country uh, and people in power care about the conflict or are using this conflict to further their power or they have some sort of, they have some sort of ul- ulterior motive for continuing the conflict and that the majority of the younger people and the majority of people just want to live their life and they don't have any issues with them. Maybe they have uh, intellectually, possibly, issues. Maybe they understand their religion is at conflict with the others, but they don't want to kill anybody. They don't want to have any problems. You eat your food, I'll eat my food. We'll all be, we're all good. Is that, a is that the general way, consensus or uh, is, that, is that false? I
0: think it is, that is the case. Most of the people are much more optimistic than me regarding the two-state solutions, for example. Mm-hmm. And basically, what's going on in Israel is that people got tired of wars. And you can see it everywhere, but mainly you can see it through what's going on in the military. Israel didn't have any ground massive operation since 2006 with the second Lebanese war. And why is this? Or why, for example, when Hamas or the Islamic Jihad launched rockets from Gaza, why don't see a big military ground operation there? Well, because the government, but mostly the people realize that they don't want this anymore. They don't want to send their kids to a pointless military operation in a faraway region and come back in uh, uh, death, you know, in a casket. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, there's no more support, in, and this is my personal view, there's no more support in Israel for long wars and big wars and big infantry maneuvers on other countries. It's done. Mm-hmm. The operations are being carried out by the Air Force and by maybe in the most extreme case, commandos. But I think the time of a big military infantry maneuver it's over, unless something really big happens, like for example, that that leaves you without a choice. Uh Uh Political assassination of a prime minister, a massive kidnapping of uh, troops by terror organizations, rockets that fall down on a kindergarten, maybe. Maybe that's Uh that could be, Uh and I'm also not sure that that's the case. But my point is that there's not much more support here for infantry maneuvers in Arab countries. I think it's done.
1: I mean, that's a that's a great thing. I mean, that's always that's great to hear because, I mean, when the sentiment is gone from wanting to carry on a, a long-term war, the government has to look to other ways to please its constituents. And if they're not up for war then <laughs> they got to start figuring all right well we'll help give you better 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 communities better neighborhoods and it's like they start to kind of worry about the things that 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 the populace the people that are going to keep them in power actually care about and if they don't care about war you can't just force a war on them that's going to get you straight out of power so in 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 that sense that that's that's really cool um I, i'm i'm curious uh as well i mean of all the things that you're writing and when you do your reporting now uh do you do long-form investigative uh reporting on sort of on sort of certain subjects? are you covering things uh just kind of at their at the surface level just to try and get them across? And if you are if you are investigating into something long term, uh what what exactly are you digging into right now? What interests you?
0: Well, I do large investigative thesis, um mainly about terrorism in South America.
1: Okay. Explain to me this, then tell me, tell me, tell me a little bit about this. What's because I don't hear anything about terrorism in South America. Is there an issue, and who's who's the terrorist, and who's where's the biggest issue in South America with terrorism?
0: Well, as as we mentioned before, uh, there were two terror attacks that kind of were the the big thing of terrorism in that region, which were the 1992 uh, bombing of the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires and the Amia Jewish Community Center bombing in 1994, also in Buenos Aires. Now, this investigation that was carried out by this prosecutor that I told you about, Alberto Nisman, who blamed the then president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, in 2015, and four days later, he was found dead in his bathroom with a gunshot wound in his head, and I'm the one who uncovered this thing, who broke this story. Um, Those are the kind of stories that interest me, everything that has to do with terrorism in South America. And this prosecutor was actually the one who realized in a detailed level uh, the terror cells that were operating since the late 80s in South America. We're speaking about Hezbollah cells um, under the, um, the immunity of Iran, uh, in cooperation with them, sometimes through diplomatic uh, cover. They were sent to several countries in South America, mainly an area that is called the triple border area, which is the border between Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. There's a very known city there, which is called the uh, West City, the the East City, sorry, Ciudad del Este. Este is East, that Mm -hmm. is city. And that's kind of a market for whatever you need guns fake ids fake passports and it's a kind of a free land a heaven and paradise for people with the city is like that sorry yeah it is right there now in paraguay in the border whoa okay and the investigations show that during the last years not only it's in the border of paraguay in this triple border area but also in Venezuela which is run by the uh, uh, president uh, Maduro uh, the socialist party the socialist united party of Venezuela the PSUV and this regime is running in Venezuela for the last 20 years and what they do because they have anti-american ideology and anti-capitalist uh, speech Whoever goes in this access with them, they will be welcome. And this means, for example, guerrilla movements for the neighbor, neighbors Colombia, um, and of course, with criminal or terror elements, whether it's Hezbollah or Hamas or people who are have ties with them. In a higher level, there's a 20 years Strategic bond uh, through a deal that was signed recently between uh, Venezuela and the Islamic Republic of Iran. They are political allies now, okay, and also Russia is inside of this. Wow! So Venezuela has has become the most important ally of Iran in South America, and one of the reasons that it's happened is because. Uh, this change of government in Venezuela that happened in 1999, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the vacuum that US allies left after they lost the government was filled by these movements, by this kind of ideology. So, and because of the history of Latin America, there is an anti American sentiment residual that is existing there since ages
1: what's the what's the giant benefit for iran in in russia to be so buddy buddy with venezuela what do they get out of the deal exactly
0: to counter the u.s influence in that continent basically
1: okay that's it yeah Mm -hmm. to just be a thorn in the side for the u.s that they still have to fight this proxy war in a certain sense one of many places right where the conflict. Between those countries, is there. Is China involved at all in South America?
0: Yes, but mostly economically speaking, through investments mm-hmm. and not through other means. They, they buy a lot of stuff. You know, basically, South America is a great um, exporter of uh, cereals and agricultural stuff. That's their main thing. And China is the biggest buyer of. Soil, for example, uh, soybeans. And because wherever the U.S. lives, then Russia or China will come in. In South America, it is a fact. And you can see also in other places in the world, in Syria, for example, there's never a vacuum of power. Somebody always comes in.
1: I see. Yeah. And I mean, of course that 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 does make sense. It's just uh China has a different and I mean, not to speak of, and since I'm not sure how much you've looked into or how much uh you know your your journalistic work has taken you to deal with issues in China, but that's a whole nother level of I would say oppression upon journalists and free speech and things like this. I mean, because they're even and I don't I know Russia does have a, a certain potential firewall on the internet and but you know i think the russians they get around that in a certain way not that the chinese the average chinese citizen doesn't have access to certain vpn and stuff like this but it's definitely stronger from what at least it appears that it's it's stronger and stuff like that uh and the fact that china has a different approach towards war now we've had interesting people on here uh dr sean McFate, who is a professor of strategy uh, at the pentagon Came on to talk about that as as well as uh, someone else who was involved in c- cybersecurity. I'm not really sure, but their attempt at uh, controlling the world or becoming a world superpower is way different than the the, the other two superpowers. Uh, you know, America with its innovation and, and push like this, and, and Russia with its you know its force and, and understanding of where they're where they're at and defending their region in, in in Europe. China has gone with this underhanded long play long form of disrupt and kind of come in and to to structurally you know uh embed themselves in certain communities and societies and stuff like this to figure out how of course as we see now with this uh with Nancy Pelosi going to visit Taiwan right uh eh, there <laughs> there was a tweet that i guess was deleted saying that they would shoot down her plane i don't know if you if you saw that they <laughs> one of the states it's not yeah, it was not directly related to the states, but it was another state website, and they actually they deleted the the post saying that we would shoot down your plane if you even dare come over there. And so, uh, and just to 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 end it on, on China before I ask what you what you think about it, one of the guys had a one of the guys we had on had a Andrew Bustamante had an interesting theory on what would happen to China and Taiwan in 2024, which was essentially that China is going to invade and take Taiwan in 2024 based on, uh, it's part of their, you know, they have this, I think it's 2049, their plan to become a superpower. I'm not sure what, uh, if it's 2049. But that during the 2024 election, America will be massively divided between what most likely looks like Trump uh, coming back and running again during this, this period, and whoever will be the Democrat, if it will be Biden or whoever. But you know America, it's a, it's a whole show. Everybody's distracted with it. And because of the current situation and how we dealt with the Russia-Ukraine, where we're helping, but we're not—we're not—we didn't send forces, you know. Uh, and it would be probably hard, to be honest, to engender a whole lot of people to just be like, "Let's go fight in Ukraine." Let's send troops. Let's send ground troops, or let's send—it's going to be tough. So, at the same sense, when you look at if China was to truly invade Taiwan, average American doesn't know where Taiwan is. They don't know what's going on there. Are you going to be able to drum up anything other than sanctions and uh China can basically do this who's going to stop them Russia's not gonna bother and then they can they can pretty much do it so I don't know what that sounds like to you, and I don't know how much you've dug into China, but I find their whole strategy just incredibly interesting uh as a country
0: oh yes and and what you start mentioning that the fact that the limitations that this regime take and does you know the the communist party. Uh, you don't hear very much uh, peace uh, movements inside of China. You don't hear. You don't hear nothing. If it's not just a cybernetic firewall, it's a physical firewall. Nothing. You don't know nothing that's going on there. And uh, yeah, you know. Also, the invasion of Ukraine started with military exercises first, and then it moved on. As you remember, it was tension for weeks and weeks building up. Uh, I was, I, I honestly, I was surprised that they actually invade. I'm, I'm on from the ones that, even that so ha- have seen all these signs coming up. I said, no, it's, it, it won't happen. And it did. And, you know, I'm responsible of Foreign Affairs in one of the biggest newspapers here, you know. And, and it's a big fact up in a way because you have all the signs that your rational brain refuse to believe that there's going to be a war. And why is that? because we haven't seen a war in ages the west has has ha, has become soft in a way so these leaders who are much more authoritarian they know how to exploit this issue and basically the strategy is okay i will conquer i will move troops and what the west will do sanction me okay so how you do with a guy like putin who's ready to move troops To another country, like in the old days. So it's very interesting to see what happened also with Taiwan. Um, It's basically interesting to see what happens, how the United States will react. And the United States is in a very compromised position given what happened in Afghanistan. That withdrawal from Afghanistan sent an image of weakness to everybody. So when Putin realized, okay, this is how. It is now. Maybe I move my piece now and see what happens. And in that that assessment was right. If it was an assessment like that, really, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But in China, right. it can happen also in Taiwan. I mean,
1: I'm really curious to see how how it's going to happen. Especially also, there's this um, the the current sentiment under. Joe Biden will be very different than it will be, say, if Trump is president again, uh, or if Trump was president um, for who he is and for the way that he 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 speaks. And he's the type of guy. At least, would you think
0: that Putin would invade Ukraine if Trump was in power?
1: That is that is such question, an interesting right? question. It's a very big question because for all the the, the talk of of Putin and, and Trump being. Uh, together and all the the stuff that they're trying to 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 buy them trump would hate at least on this very surface uh it would hate to be done one one up or to to someone to make him appear weak uh it just doesn't seem like it's a thing and so he might the danger is also of course he would have an overreaction possibly you know uh that that could be that could be there i I don't i don't i really don't know It, it 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 makes me wonder what it would be like truly if, uh, Trump was in power and somebody did some, even China, uh, for instance, as well, because that's also a very big part of his, uh, of his ticket, which is how he deals with China and trade. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big thing for him, the economy and money. That's how he built his brand. He has to be seen to be strong on making money and doing all this stuff. I would, I, I really don't know. It's, it's, it's a fantastic question. I mean, we'll see. I mean, just like the very first time, I remember in 2016, I had a friend who's also American and I was playing in Finland at the time and they were asking us early on, like, is this guy going to win? Like, it's impossible, right? He's going to win. And by then, we'd already seen, like, t- we were telling people, I think maybe, like, it wasn't for us. It wasn't like a crazy thing anymore. It was like, I think maybe this guy could win. And then obviously <laughs> it happened. And so for it to happen again, there's not a Republican out there that has a stronger following than Trump now, still. Uh, you know, So if he wins a ticket, I, it's, it's a mess. I'm not sure what you think about it or how you guys follow it, but it seems crazy. It, it could happen easily.
0: Uh, according to the, um, the polls and the public opinion polls and the uh, support that Biden has right now, which is less than 30% of uh, positive image, uh, it's a question. I, I think he, if he runs, I think he will win um, under these circumstances. I, right I think now, it's possible. I, that's what I think. Mm-hmm. I, I won last time 50 shekels. I bet that he would be, uh, beat Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I was right. Yeah. Everybody yeah. hated me in the office. I used to work with Americans back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and as a. I mean, and we're just about done here. And and as the thing, it's funny because you mentioned Hillary Clinton, and I saw headlines saying she was gonna attempt to to run again, which would also just be an insane, you know, thing to think that we, if she were to actually, you know, be on the ticket again and to have uh, Trump versus Hillary, or or uh, it would just be, it's a show, uh, you know, and America loves a show. And that's part, of, that's part of the good and bad of, uh, of America, to be perfectly honest. Uh, everything is a show, marketing on steroids, um, you know, and uh, I don't know what's going to happen. But yeah, I could, I could absolutely see. It's no longer, I think that's part of the, the thing. It's no longer crazy if Trump wins.
0: Listen, uh, there's kind of a sentiment, uh, especially in the Western world of, among more progressive societies, Uh, complaining about the uh, power of the United States as a superpower, actually. So when I ask myself, okay, just wait, what happens when China will be in charge of things? And what does it say for your personal freedoms and your personal well-being?
1: That's so true. That's so true. Because, yeah, I think people definitely, I mean, it's, it's always easy to look at the person or people or group at the top and say, well, look at all the faults and things like that. But it would be a very big, I mean, if, if China is the one really making some uh, the world's decisions on policies and what seems to be the new norms and stuff like that, I don't think anyone who's living in the West would be at all happy about the, the loss of, if they feel like they have a loss of privacy and freedom now. Uh, to live under a truly authoritarian government, I it's, it's, there's no comparison, right? Uh, so, uh, listen. So we're, we're, we're just about done here. Where can people see all this stuff? I mean, you're all over YouTube, actually, and obviously you have your, your the, the TV and the news and the news stuff. But if people want to see, hear more, do more stuff, do you have a website? Do you have social media? Where, where can people follow you?
0: Well, I'm mostly active on Twitter, and mostly in Spanish. But I promise to work more on my English tweets. It's at Damien Uh They can see me on uh, i24 News. I have a TV show there, and uh, also, well, if you read Ivo, you can read me on Israel Those are the places where I work. Okay, okay, okay.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll link. We'll link to everything. Obviously. Uh, listen. It was. It's really. I love these type of conversations because it allows just to. to, to it's a perspective that I, you can't just get. I can't just walk down the street, like if I was in the U.S., just walk down the street and ask somebody, hey, how's it going in South America and, uh, and in Israel, and what's the actual thing? So I, I love these conversations because they're actually, they open up your mind in a way that I think everyone should look to, to actually try and understand the world, which isn't through just the media, but I think through actual conversation and hearing pointed questions so you can hear what someone thinks deeply about a subject Uh, rather than just being like, I saw a Facebook post that said goblins were taking over Rwanda. You know, that's what's happening. It just doesn't make any sense, you know? Uh, So, definitely. Cool. Uh, I appreciate it, man. We'll have to do it some other time. And uh, thanks again.
0: Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. and Amazing questions. It's really fun. (laughs)